you know, we've been for many months now doing a series called Dazzling Christianity out of the book of James. And um, I'm going to press pause on that, and I'll tell you why now. It's because I was, I've been asked to preach on revival at the Vineyard, which I, where I will be next week. And um, initially, when I was asked to go and preach, I thought, Lord, what am I going to say? So many different opinions about revival and what it means and how it comes, and also confusing. I felt, felt a little bit... Um, Backfooted about the whole thing. But then as I began to think about it and speak to some friends, I began to get really, really excited. I thought, I mean, it's such an amazing and huge topic to explore. And so I thought it would be good that as we continue this, this um, study on James, that every now and then we just take a pause. And since we're at the end of the first chapter, we're going to take a pause on our study of James, which really is, it is a book about personal revival anyway. That's what it is. The whole book's about revival. And we're going to look, in the context of James, we're going to look at revival specifically, but from a church history point of view, and I'd like to explore some of the, these following themes. I guess the first place we can look is uh, what the Bible has to say. So pictures of revival, the New, New Testament pictures of revival, what happened on the day of Pentecost. Secondly, we can look at, well, what do we mean by revival? How do we define it? I'd like to look at some, thirdly, some stories of revival out of, of church history, some of the Great Awakenings, the Welsh Revival, the two Great Awakenings of the eight, late 18th century. Uh, how, how can we learn from those? How does that work? And then why do churches need revival? Because oh, there seems to be a pattern in church history that revival comes and then, and then churches get into decline and something needs to happen again. We'll look at something like that. How does revival come? What are we looking for in terms of when we speak about revival? Uh, are there any problems associated with revival? How do we pray for revival? <laughs> Many things. So that's going to keep us going for a couple of months. So we'll see how it goes. But what I'd like to do is do one or two weeks around revival and get back into James. And when we need a break from James, come back and talk a little bit more about revival and trust God for an amazing thing this year in the life of the church. All right, so I'm going to kick off by James, going back to James, okay? And we're going to read a portion out of James. James chapter 4. We're going to skip forward a couple of, of chapters. Please go with me to James chapter 4. And we're going to read the first, first 10 verses. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. It says this, What causes quarrels and what causes fights amongst you? Talking about the church, the letter written to the early church. What causes fights amongst you? What causes quarrels amongst you? Is it not this that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions, you adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it's to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the Spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, 
but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord, and he will exalt you. It's an amazingly challenging passage, isn't it? Just in terms of James, and I've already given the context of James, but just to refresh your memory, there was magnificent growth in the first century in the early church. Absolutely magnificent growth. You read in Acts chapter 2, this powerful outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and 3,000 people are saved, and the church grows like it's never, ever grown before. And I I hope we will see that kind of... um, growth again, and then you know the story that persecution comes and the church is scattered all over the Mediterranean basin. It's discouraged. It's backfooted. It's just saying things like, well, it didn't work out like we thought it was going to work out. And so James writes this letter, one of the first letters written to the church to encourage them. And you know we've been, that's the journey we've been on, just having a look. But I want to say to you that James could be writing to any number of churches in the United Kingdom, any number of churches. And I, I want to be bold enough to say that I think most of the churches in the United Kingdom, and I say this as a church leader, are backfooted. Most of the churches in the UK are discouraged. Most of the ch- churches in the UK are backslidden. And I want to just say that we are in desperate need of a great awakening in our own lives and in the life of this nation. And I don't say this to accuse anybody. I say this to encourage you in your own walk with Jesus. And I want to answer a simple question this morning. Why do we need revival? Why do we need the revival? And I'd like to just start with a, uh, a, a quote by a guy I've been reading recently, a guy called Sp- Scotty Smith. He's an American. He leads a church in Franklin, Tennessee. And the first thing I want to say this morning is we need revival because of our personal condition. Because of our personal condition. And uh, Scotty Smith says this. He says, until the day Jesus returns... Our natural drift as the people of God will always be to spiritual atrophy, not spiritual entropy, towards self-serving idolatry, not God-centered worship, towards using God, not serving Him, towards salvation by us, not salvation by grace. Towards being coddled, not being changed. Towards church as an ingrown club, not church as a missional community. Towards protection of our little tribe, not the welcoming of the nations. Towards hair-splitting factionalism and ugly schisms not diligence in preserving the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. In short, I ask God for revival because only the power of Jesus' resurrection is sufficient to keep sinner saints like us from contradicting the gospel even more than we do. (laughs) That is powerful. And I hope this morning that something of your heart will be stirred as I share some things. And I'm going to look a little bit at church history this morning as well. But I, I, I want to say I hope that that little quote stirs something in, in you. Firstly, that 
we'd all be convicted that that really is our true state apart from the grace of God working in our lives. We all tend to legalism. We all tend to religiousness. We all tend to self-seeking and rather than seeking the things of God. And I think part of liberty and freedom is just admitting that to yourself. And then God can start to work in your life. I want to say to you, I'm not convinced that anyone can bring genuine revival. Any person. I think it's a sovereign work of God. I think the best that we can do is we can start to prepare ourselves and, and, uh, as best as we can by spending time in prayer and the Word and allowing God to soften our hearts. And, and when He pours it out, we are ready. I don't know if we can manufacture it, and that's something of the journey that I'd like to explore with you over the next while. So we need it personally. We need to be revived personally. Secondly, I want to say our nation needs it. And I guess all of you um, would have had some kind of reaction to the riots. And I trust if you were shocked by the violence, I hope that you were not surprised by it. Because I want to say this, if, if we are surprised by what we saw, we're not got good students of the Bible. We're not good students of the Scripture. We haven't really read the Scripture because the Scripture makes it quite plain and quite clear that that is the inevitable consequence of a nation that removes itself from the truth of the gospel. That's going to happen. So I don't say that in, an, in, a, in a kind of um, way of pointing a finger. I'm just saying it's a natural consequence. If a nation turns its back on the gospel, that's what's going to happen. And I agree with the Prime Minister. I think, I think that Britain is broken. I think this amazing nation in which we live is broken. The real question is, how do we fix it? And so I was listening this morning on the radio as we were coming. I was listening to the news, and there were two contrasting things. Uh, David Cameron, on the one hand, was saying the nation is broken. It's been broken for a long time. There are things in, the, in, in our recent history that we've allowed to let slip, and so there's a whole lot of things that are inevitable consequence of that. And I would agree. <laughs> and then the news, re- uh, the news reader read another portion by Tony Blair who said in one of the other newspapers, we shouldn't admit to any kind of moral decline because all that it does, it presents a bad image to the outside world and it makes people feel depressed. So I put it to you. What are we supposed to do? Just smile like a Cheshire cat and pretend that nothing's wrong and carry on and just pretend that a 14-year-old in Enfield didn't stab another 14-year-old the other day. Just pretend that there's no problem. Well, I think it is broken. I think Britain is deeply broken. I think I want to declare to you this morning the most patriotic thing that you and I can do in this nation at this time for the love of this nation is to preach the gospel of Jesus. I believe it with all my heart. It's to preach the gospel of Jesus. Acts of parliament are good to a measure, but acts of parliament do not transform the hearts and the minds of people. I prayed during the worship that I, I think Britain is broken from the top down. Why do you think we've had issues of dishonest MPs bending the rules to get more money in the last couple of years? Why do you think we've had all these issues around, around phone hacking? It's all the same thing. It's, ex- it's brokenness expressed in different ways. And now in the last couple of weeks, we've seen young people on the streets breaking windows, shooting at policemen. I read in the paper the other day. Looting, robbing. No sense of individual responsibility. 
Well, I want to say to you, the only thing that's going to transform this nation from the inside out is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the best thing that you and I can do is get up on our feet and start being Christians that count for something because Jesus is transforming us and there's a passion in us that refuses to go away and we declare the goodness of Jesus. I want to say to you, I've been so encouraged in the, in the last couple of weeks because I've also been following on Twitter Soul Survivor and the three events that they've had. 1,600 kids saved in the last two weeks. That is worth celebrating. Now, you can't be happy this morning. I'm trying not to be intense. I know this is intense. My friends, we live in a nation that is in desperate need of a gospel awakening that will only come from a revived church. And I'm challenging you as a church this morning. I'm challenging myself. Revived churches come from revived people. Revived people are helped into the fullness of that by revived leadership who have an unswerving commitment to being Christ-centered, to being gospel-driven, to being spirit-filled. That is what revives churches and people as we increasingly encourage each other into the fullness of Christ in our own lives. Or do you believe that revival comes if we just have some kind of nice big event, a revival meeting? That doesn't revive the church for long. That's what church history shows. It's good for a moment. Revived churches are built by revived people who have a radical commitment to Christ in their own lives. And I want to say to you that revival from God, when genuine revival comes into our own lives as individuals, there is a radical influential effect into the community. And there's also a personal intimacy in your own relationship with God. When you are revived yourself, there's a personal deep intimacy with Him that no one can take away. And that's why I've been trying to preach this thing of radical Christianity out of uh, dazzling Christianity out of James. It is a book about revival. It's about personal revival. It's it's, uh, calling discouraged people back to personal intimacy with God. So your starting point, your, your and my starting point can either be God transform me, I open my heart to you right now, or it can be God, I'm going to go somewhere where I can get some kind of revival, encouragement. And then for the rest of your life, you're running around the world trying to go to some revival meeting. No, it can happen here. It can happen right this morning as you sit around these tables. If God, you allow something of the Spirit to touch you and transform you. And something of the apathy of your own life and my life get washed away in the glory of Jesus. That's what revival is for me. True revival transforms lives, and then it transforms families, then it transforms communities, and finally it transforms nations. And the key for this nation, this green and pleasant land, and we've just been up to the the, the Lake District, it is a beautiful, green, and pleasant land. The key for the future of this nation, my friends, I say this with all love in my heart, is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in me. Colossians 1.27, Paul says, this is what I preach with all the energy within me. Christ in me, the hope of glory. That's what it is. Whether you are a chef, whether you are a business partner, whether you run your own business, Christ in you, the hope of glory to transform you, your family, the community, your business, your school. Christ in you, the hope of glory. And I believe any church that beats with a divine passion will be 
marked by authentic God-centered worship. It will be marked by an intentional and unstoppable commitment to the Great Commission to seeing the gospel preached. I read this guy, uh, another American, Harry Reader, who I've never heard of before, but I found one of his um, quotes quite interesting. He said in the 18th century, in the Second Great Awakening, he, he said it's quoted, it seemed like the whole world was going to church. That's what he, what he quotes. And I want to say that perhaps it seemed like the whole church was going, uh, the whole of the world was going to church because the whole church really was going into the world. <laughs> and the question is, you know, we can look longingly to history. But why don't we see that today in our own nation? Why aren't we seeing that now? Well, perhaps I want to suggest to you that something of the answer this morning is that we start to provide, to pray for revival to start in us. I, I want to suggest to you this morning that I think the uncomfortable truth is that we don't really love one another. We don't really love the lost as we ought to love the lost because we don't really know the love of Christ ourselves as we should. And so we prefer the comforts of sleeping in on a Sunday. We prefer the comforts of our families, the distraction of leisure, career, the distraction of sport, over loving the lost, over loving a broken community, over loving the church. And then we say, God, we need revival. And I, I want to just gently say, I think our priorities are clearly reflected in the use of our time and our money. And they are an uncomfortable barometer of our own hearts. And they show what really is in our hearts. Jesus said, where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. Where your time is, that's where your heart is. What you're giving yourself to, that's really what you value. I believe that if we were to see God-centered revival in this church, it would transform this community. It would landscape the society. St. Albans would be changed. Jesus changed the world with 12 men who were fully convinced that he was the Messiah and who said he was who he said he was. And we're going to look at some of the stories. I've got some delightful stories of, from Roman historians that will just give you an idea of how exciting and dangerous it was to be a Christian in the first century. And lastly, why do we need revival? Thirdly, because God promises it to us. <laughs> and that's wonderful, isn't it? Psalm 85, verse 6. Will you not revive us again that your people will rejoice in you? That's what the psalmist says. God, won't you revive us that your people will rejoice in you, that there'll be a wholeheartedness, there'll be a delight in you. And I, I believe we can ask God for revival. We can, we can um, pray for revival because he's made many promises to renew his people, to refresh his people, to revive his people before Jesus comes again, back again. And I, that's why I believe the church is called to be a first fruits of what it's going to be like. We are called to be a first fruits of the new heaven and the new earth. That's why Jesus talks about his church as a city set on the hill. It's a down payment. It's a deposit of that eternal city that is to come. And to be that, we can only do that by the power of the Holy Spirit and for the Holy Spirit to be poured out upon us. And God's promise is to us is that if we ask for His Spirit to be poured out, He's not going to give us a scorpion. He's not going to give us a stone. He's going to give us what we ask for. And if we ask for the Holy Spirit, He's going to give us the Holy Spirit.
So let's, let's have an increased heart of expectation this year. Let's be bold to say, God, why not us? Why not here? Why not now? You have promised it. You can do it. And just to seek him with all of our hearts. And there's many Old Testament and New Testament scriptures. I just want to give you one. Habakkuk 3 verse 2. I love it. It says this, Lord, I have heard of your reports and of your work in the midst of the years. Revive your work and make it known. And in your wrath, remember mercy. Let that be a prayer of our hearts this year. Revive your work, Lord. Make it known. In your wrath, remember mercy. Let that yearning grow in all of us. And then there's the great encouragement of history. And I want to encourage you as, as a, as a, in your own life to be a student of history. You know what I'm discovering more and more is that when you read and when you study history, far from discouraging you as a Christian, it encourages you as a Christian. And I believe if you really dig into history and you look and see from documents that are written outside of Scripture, you will find that those things confirm the Scripture and confirm the message of the Gospel rather than the reverse. And sometimes I think we're too back-footed as Christians. You know, um, I was listening to a delightful series, and I want to encourage you, please, to listen to the series by Michael Eaton. I went to Westminster Chapel a couple of weeks ago, and he's preaching a series called The Real Jesus. Absolutely wonderful. And he was looking at this whole thing of why Christians sometimes uh, allow certain things to influence them negatively. Have you, have you, have you, have you um, noticed the rise of, of sort of novels, spiritual novels? Most famous of is, is uh, the Da Vinci Code. And then there's the other ones like the Lucifer Code and the Magdalene Papers and all these kind of novels that people uh, are adopting as true. And so when you go into W.H. Smith, you can look in the history section and you can find a novel in the history section rather than, and you can find some historical books in, in, the, in the novel section. How's that? Why is that? It's because in our nation, and in, in the, as the gospel, which is historical fact and truth, is displaced, what people are actually then replacing it with is superstition. And that's what the Bible says will happen. And so people are more kind of uh, interested in Harry Potter than they are in the truth of the Scripture. We should not be surprised by this, and we should not be threatened by these things. And I might take some time in the next while to explore some of those things with you, because when you look at the origins of those things, they're not true at all. They're novels. And so what about, you know, what about the gospel of Judas? Well, is it a gospel at all? What about the gospel of Thomas? Is it even referring to Thomas, or is it just philosophy of religion? which suits the age in which we live. Well, I'd like to take some time, but I can't get distracted. But I want to say to this, we can be encouraged by history. And the best example from history that we can, we can have a look at in terms of revival is the first century church. Man, it's exciting. And so I've already alluded to it. Uh, after the day of Pentecost, Peter, Peter preaches, and you know the story, 3,000 are saved, and it says daily, they're meeting each other's homes and the, and the temple courts, and daily people are being added. It is the most radical thing that happens. The gospel spreads like wildfire in the Roman Empire, and it's like a revival that the world has never seen. And I, I trust we will see it again. And if you read the first five chapters of Acts, please go and do it this week. It's incredibly encouraging. And there's all these stories. And it's in, in chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira, they're disobedient. They struck down dead because they pretend to be more generous than they are. That's really what happens. Man, it's radical when the Holy Spirit is poured out. 
And then they choose some deacons because the, the apostles just want to pray and, and they want to preach the word and they, all the Greeks and the Hebrews are fighting about how should they should dis- distribute stuff. And then the amazing turning point comes in Acts chapter 7 and we read that the trial of Stephen and his death. And in Acts chapter 8, we read this after Stephen has been stoned. It says, Saul approved of his execution and on that day there rose a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were scattered through all the regions of Judea, Samaria, all except the apostles. Devout men bed, Stephen made great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering the house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So there's the turning point. This amazing, amazing... Um, well, in some ways it's a turning point, in other ways it's not. There's this remaining re- uh, revival church is growing very quickly, persecution comes, and Paul is the one approving of it, Saul is the one approving it, and the church is scattered all over the Mediterranean basin. It's at this point that James is writing his letter to discourage church, to encourage them. But the reality is that over the first century, the gospel of Jesus had a radical, radical effect on the Roman Empire. And that was largely due to the the writing of people like James, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And I want to point you now to a point much later in, um, in Acts chapter 25. Will you go with there quickly? We're going to read one verse of Acts chapter 25 and Acts chapter 26. Because the amazing thing is now that all, these time later, all this time later, the same Paul that had persecuted and killed Stephen and was persecuting the church by this time has had a radical encounter with God. And in Acts chapter 25, he himself is on trial for preaching the gospel. Isn't that amazing? Acts chapter 25, Paul is on trial for preaching the, the, preaching the gospel. The same man that had proved the, of the killing of Stephen is now standing before Festus and Agrippa, two Roman, uh, uh, Festus, a Roman official, and Agrippa, a Jewish king, and he's, he's uh, defending his preaching of the gospel. And in Acts chapter 26, verse 26, he uses this amazing phrase, and this is um, some of the things that I learned from Michael a couple of weeks ago that I just found incredibly encouraging. He says this, The king knows about these things, and I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things have escaped his notice, for this has been done, not been done in a corner. Isn't that amazing? All these things that have happened have not been done in a corner, in secret. Paul is, of course, talking about the preaching of the gospel. He's talking about the death and resurrection of Jesus. He's talking about his own call by God. And if you read chapter 25, he talks about all of those things. And he says to Herod Agrippa II, who's this Jewish king, he says, you know about all these things, and these things have not been done in a corner. And that's very interesting. Why does he use that phrase? Why does he say that specifically to King Herod Agrippa? Well, you know, Festus is the Roman official, like I said. Uh, Herod Agrippa was a Jew, and he was visiting with his wife called Beatrice. And um, Festus doesn't know what to do with Paul. And so he, he says to Agrippa, well, you Jewish, you understand all these things of Jewish custom and law. Come and hear this man, Paul, and I can make a, uh, a judgment on that basis. And so if you go and read the story in, in, in Acts chapter 25, Paul tells him the story of how he was saved, how he'd been called to be apostle. He says he wasn't um, disobedient to the vision that God, have, God had given him, that he received from God. And he says, now I testify that these things are true. And in verse 24, Festus calls out to Paul and he says, Paul, you are a great scholar, but your learning is driving you mad. You are mad. What you're saying is absolutely mad. 
and Paul turns around to him and says, Nah, says, I speak true and rational words. That's what the ESV says. He says, I speak true and rational words. You know what I'm talking about and what I've been talking about has not been done in a corner. You are evidenced of it. And what is he, this is the amazing thing. He addresses Agrippa when he says that. Well, here is what I find incredibly interesting. King Herod Agrippa II, he had a great, great grandfather called King Herod. King Herod was king when Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And King Herod, his great-grandfather, ordered the execution of every boy under the age of two in order to try and kill Jesus, the Messiah. He also, King Herod Agrippa II, also has a great-uncle. And his great-uncle was the guy who murdered John the Baptist. Remember Salome, the one who danced and brought John the Baptist's head to King Herod on a plate? was his great uncle. He's also the son of Herod Agrippa I who murdered James, the apostle. And remember the story in Acts? It says that um, when, it, when he saw that it uh, pleased, ple- pleased the, the Jews that he had murdered James, he throws Peter in jail as well. And then Peter, they're singing songs at midnight. Do you remember that story? So Paul is saying to Agrippa, don't try and get away with it like that. You know all of these things. You have been witness to the story of Jesus. You've been witness to his life for 60 years. You know exactly what I'm talking about. Your relatives have ordered the... You know what your relatives have done in the story of Jesus. These things are out in the open for anyone to investigate and to know they were not done in a corner. Well... What is Paul doing? He's challenging Agrippa to look at history. He's challenging him to say, look at the facts. You know what the facts are. And I want to say to you, my friends, we have the beautiful privilege of looking at history and judging for ourselves from the facts of history what happened in the first century outside of this book. And I'm not saying we, I'm I'm saying they will only confirm what is in this book. So, what can we learn from history about uh, the early revival, about Jesus, about the preaching of the gospel in the first, first century, and, and I hope this will encourage you. All right? I'm going to look at a couple of things. Well, the Roman emperor who was, um, who was uh, emperor when Jesus was around was an emperor, em- emperor called Tiberius, and he was uh, the emperor when Jesus was crucified. And Pontius Pilate was the proconsul. He was the guy, he was like a, a minion underneath who did the will of Tiberius, all right? He was one of the guys who was a governor in a province of Judea. And so if you are looking from a point of view of history, what do you do? Well, you're going to have a look at the, the, the Roman historians who were writing at the time. What did they say about Jesus? And what did they say about the gospel? What did they say about what happened? And there are four sources that we're going to look at this morning um, quite quickly. And uh, they all speak of Tiberius's reign, and they have something to say about Jesus and about the gospel and about this great revival. And two of these Roman historians actually do say something about Jesus, which in a sense is absolutely fascinating and surprising. Why do I say that? Because Jesus was a roving preacher. He was ministering in the back end of a little province called Palestine that was of no importance to the Romans really and would have had little impact into the governors that were in Rome. And so for anyone to say anything about Jesus, what's actually quite surprising, why would they write anything about Jesus? Well, the answer is 
Amazingly, I don't think they were really interested in Jesus or in his story. What they really were interested in is they could not get away from the fact that in the first century there were so many Christians in the Roman Empire that they were affecting everything. That Christians were a problem to the Romans. There were so many of them. And so out of necessity, the Romans have to say, who are these Christians? Where do they come from? And why are they causing such problems? And so they have to start asking these questions. And it goes back, you can read, there's one name that comes up, Christiano. It's the Greek word for Christ's people. These are Christiano. They are Christ's people. It all goes back to this roving preacher from Galilee in the back end of beyond, and they're his followers, and they're the ones are calling, causing problems. And so I want to have a look um, there's a, at four sources. Tertullian, who's a church father. I want to look at a guy called Pliny, who's a Roman governor. Another guy, um, uh, uh, well, we'll get there now, but let's start with Tertullian. Who's, um, he's a church father. All right? He's an early Christian writer. He's from a place called Carthage in, in North Africa, you know. And he's a, why it's interesting is because he was a pioneering writer in Latin. And um, he writes to a, a guy called Scipio, who's a Roman go- district governor in the where, place that he's living. And he says this in the first century. He says this to the Roman governor in the place that he's living. He says, we, that's the Christians, are but of yesterday... But we have filled every place among you, your cities, your islands, your fortresses, your towns, your marketplaces, the very camp. That's where the soldiers were, right? The tribes, the senate, the forum, the palaces. The only place that we have left to you are your temples where you worship your pagan gods. That's what Tertullian says. That's how radical the revival has been. That's how many Christians there are. Tertullian is saying to this guy, saying, Scipio, we have filled every place in society. There are so many of us. (laughs) and he he carries on he says to Scipio imagine if we wanted to take over he says this he says he says this without arms without weapons without battles we could take over just by turning up at the palace there are so many Christians he says we could just get up if we wanted to and we could take over if we wanted to man Don't think because there's a handful of Christians in the UK that God can't do it again. He can. He started with 12 people in the book of Acts. And he transformed the whole empire in 100 years. God can do it again. What's going to take? It's going to take some of us to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. He is who he said he promised. And we're going to proclaim it with all passion in our hearts. And people are going to get saved. You look at me like I'm mad. Well, perhaps I am. You know what else Tertullian says? He says, if all the Christians were removed from the empire and went to some remote corner of the world, he says to Scipio, the loss would be so great that would cover the empire with shame. And he says, you would be horrified at the solitude in which you would find yourself. (laughs) He's saying, if all the Christians left and went to some obscure corner of the empire, there would be no one left for you to govern. That's what he's saying. He's saying all that would be left are your enemies because all the good citizens, all the Christians would remove themselves and all you would have left to govern are your enemies. That's how many Christians there were. That's how radically the gospel had impacted and influenced the Roman Empire. 
written by Tertullian. Here's another guy called Pliny. Pliny is also a Roman governor. There's two Plinys, Pliny the Elder and Pliny the Younger. And um, he was like Festus, similar to Festus. And he lived around A.D. 117, all right? And that's interesting because the last apostle, John, died at a- a- around A.D. 95. So it's just after John, the, fi- the last apostle alive, has died. And he's got a problem because, again, there are so many Christians in the province that he's governing, and they won't play ball with the Romans, and he's, he's frustrated. And so he writes to Trajan, who is the emperor, emperor of that time, and he's got a problem. He's saying, what am I gonna, what am I gonna do with all these Christians? The temples are closing down. All the people that uh, had um, selling meat for sacrifices are going out of business. And it's like a real problem. What do I do with these Christians? And then he says to Trajan, he says, this is what they do. They were accustomed to me, and I'm quoting directly. You can go and look on, on, online. Just Google these guys' names and you'll find all these quotes. It says, um, they are, that's the Christians, were accompanying accustomed to meet on a fixed day before dawn and sing responsibly, uh, responsibly a hymn to Christ as to God. That's interesting. Even in the first century, the Romans recognized that when Christians sang, they were singing to Jesus as God and bound themselves to a solemn oath not to do any wicked thing but never to commit fraud, theft, adultery, never to falsify their word, nor to deny a trust that they should be called upon to deliver. And when this was over, it was their custom to depart and assemble again to have a meal, only ordinary, innocent food. So this is what Pliny says to, to Trajan. This is what the Christians do. They get up before the crack of dawn. They sing songs to God, to Jesus, like he's a God. They're crazy. Because, I mean, the, the Romans thought that their emperors were divine. You understand that? That's why it was a problem. <laughs> no, they're saying this man, this man is divine and they sing some songs and they go away, they live their lives, they, they're good citizens, but they refuse to do to honor the emperor as divine and they honor Jesus and it's causing a problems in our, in our temple and everything is getting thrown upside down. What do I do? And so Trajan writes back and he says, just keep on doing what you're doing. Persecute them. One day they'll go away. That's what he says. One day you'll be rid of them. Well, that seemed to have been a mistake looking back, doesn't it? And uh, Pliny goes on and he says, uh, I interrogate them, and if they confess, I repeat the question twice again, asking the threat of, uh, on the ca- threat of capital punishment. If they still persevere, I order them to be executed. For whatever the nature of their creed might be, I would, could at least feel no doubt that consummacy and inflexible obstinacy deserves chastisement. In other words, they don't change. They won't change, so I'm going to punish them. And he says, there are others possessed of the same folly, but because they were Roman citizens, I signed an order for them to be transformed to Rome, transfer, transferred to Rome. These early Christians refused to bow down. These early Christians refused to serve Caesar. These early Christians refused to bow down to, to, to idols. They were radical. Thirdly, there's another Roman historian called Suetonius, and he's uh, written a book called The Lives of the Caesars, which um, you can also get. I had a look at it this week, and uh, it's a standard history of, of all the Caesars of Rome. And he tells what happened in the reign of Tiberius, Claudius, and Nero. And this is what he says about the reign of Claudius. He says, Since the Jews were constantly making disturbance at the instigation of Christos, they were expelled from Rome. And so if you read history, you know that's true. AD 43, Claudius drove out every Christian Every, every Jew from, from Rome because they were fighting about who Jesus was. 
And, there was, and that's what we read in the book of, book of Acts. And this is what Suetonius writes, who's a historical um, historian, from, a Roman historian. And then he says, in terms of reign of Nero, he says, Nero inflicted punishment on the Christians, a class of people with some new superstition. No, he, don't, he just doesn't really understand what they're on about. He says, this class of people, they've got this new superstition about some guy being raised from the dead, and he's from Judea somewhere. And Anyway, this new superstition that these guys have. But um, Nero kind of dealt with them. That's what Suetonius says. And then I think perhaps the most interesting is a guy called Tacitus. And what he writes is very interesting because um, he specifically writes about Nero. And many of you know that what happened in uh, May, June of AD 64 was that the city of Rome caught fire. And there was a massive fire. It raged for six or seven days. And then there seemed to be a lull, and it raged again for another three days. And the entire city of Rome was burning for 10 days. And it was divided into provinces, and of the provinces, 10 of the 14 provinces were completely destroyed. And what was interesting is that the news got around that Nero himself had started the fire. And why was that? I was just, as I was reading this week, I was just disturbed by the lifestyle of some of these emperors and what they actually did. But anyway... One of the things Nero fancied himself was, as was great, he fancied himself as an architect, and he actually wanted to rebuild Rome. And so the people knew this, and so when this fire broke out, they thought, well, perhaps Nero started so he could, he could actually rebuild the city. But it's interesting, because what, what, what Nero does is he blames the Christians. And why does he blame the Christians? Well, he had a very interesting way that he could do that, because the early Christians taught that the, the, the world would end in judgment and in fire, and God would bring judgment at the end of the world. And so he, it was convenient for him to blame the Christians. And this is what Tacitus, this Roman uh, historian, writes. He says this, and I'm quoting him directly. He says, Consequently, to get rid of this report, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Christos, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of the great of, of our procurators, Pontius Pilate, and a most mischievous superstition, thus checked for a moment, again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but also in Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their center and become popular. So he's not approving of Christianity. He's saying it's some, it's some hideous superstition that was first in Judea and it's now found its way to Rome where all things hideous and shameful find popularity in Rome. And he carries on. He says, Accordingly, an arrest was made of all those who pleaded guilty. And then upon their information, an immense multitude was convicted, not so much of the crime of firing the city, but as of hatred against mankind. So they didn't even judge them on the fact that they were supposed to have burned the city down. They just said, no, these people hate mankind. And mockery of every sort was added to their deaths. Covered with the skins of beasts, they were torn by dogs and perished or were nailed to crosses or doomed to the flames and burnt to serve as a nightly illumination when daylight had expired. That's what Tacitus, the Roman historian, writes. In other words, there were so many Christians that were slaughtered so many that they could light the streets at night with the burning corpses. That's what Nero did. My point is, how many Christians were there in the first century? 
they had radically impacted that community and that society. And Paul says to, to Agrippa, but these things were not done in a corner. You have seen them. You know the evidence of, these, of, of what is going down. These things are not done in a corner. They are there for everyone to see. So my friends, I want to conclude by coming back to this point where I started to say, surely that kind of revival we need again. Surely that kind of revival is possible again. Surely I would love to live in a nation which says, actually, you don't want the Christians to leave, to quote Tertullian again, because if they did, you would be horrified at the isolation in which you find yourself. <laughs> there would be no one else left. That is the society radically transformed by the power of Jesus. And so I do want to ask you this morning, not in an introverted way, but in an honest way, in a heartfelt way, to consider that quote of Scotty Smith that I started with, and I want to read it again to you. Until the day Jesus returns, our natural drift as the people of God will always be towards spiritual atrophy, not spiritual entropy, towards self-serving idolatry, not God-centered worship, towards using God, not serving Him, towards salvation by us, not salvation by grace, towards being coddled, not being changed, towards church as an ingrown club, not church as a missional community, towards the protection of our tribe, not welcoming the nations, towards hair-splitting factionalism and ugly schisms, not diligence in preserving the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. In short, I ask God for revival because only the power of Jesus' resurrection is sufficient to keep sinner saints like us from contradicting the gospel even more than we do. And then I want to point you to James chapter 4, but he gives us more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourself to God, just the devil. He will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord, and he will exalt you. I want to just give opportunity to break bread. But before we do that, I want to just ask you to be quiet in your heart and just to let the Holy Spirit come where you are and minister to you this morning. Because I think all of us would agree that we don't want to just exist as Christians. We don't want to just have another year, this new school year like we had last year. I'm sure all of you would agree that as a church, we desire to impact this community. We desire to see many saved. We desire to see the community transformed along with all the other churches that, that minister in this area. And my question is a simple one. How's that going to happen? Is that going to happen externally as we just go looking for something to help revive us? always going to happen in us by the power of the Holy Spirit as the Spirit comes and brings conviction and we genuinely respond to that and God transforms us from the inside out. How's it going to happen? 
And so I want to just uh, encourage you as we stand at the beginning of this new school year that God can pour revival out upon us, that He wants to. And what we can do is get ourselves ready. We can keep our hearts soft. We can, we can love each other. We can genuinely love each other. We can love the lost. We can, we can preach the good news of Jesus. And when He moves, we'll be ready. And what I'm trying to say, I think for me that's an active stance. It's not a passive thing. And so I want to ask you just as we end this morning and before we break bread, perhaps you know that you have in your own life have tended towards some of those things that Scotty Smith so eloquently said. I know that I've had to say I've, I've tended towards some of them. So I don't say that in any way other to encourage you. Can we start this year with a longing in our hearts and a prayer on our lips and a position, a spiritual position of expectation, of open-heartedness towards God, of prioritizing the right things in terms of our time and our money and what we really value, that we can see something of the power of the gospel transform this community through us.